certainly don't know everything. 90% of what we know about Alzheimer's disease alone has been discovered only in the past 15 or so years. Cholesterol is a vital, waxy substance that we produce in our own bodies and brains. So what is, what's making this otherwise good compound go bad? Like most non-communicable chronic diseases, they begin years, if not decades, before the presentation of symptoms. So that very clearly offers us a window of opportunity to intervene and to change course when it comes to our cognitive destiny. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Super excited about today's episode, friends. This is one of those episodes where I have been reading the author's books for way before having this podcast, so it was really, really a surreal moment. Genius Foods, The Genius Life. Max Lugavere's work is just so enlightening, so helpful, and really, really resonates with me with his approach to diet and fitness and brain health. And I just really think you guys will enjoy this. And it was definitely interesting to hear his opinion on some other guests that I've had on the show concerning brain health, the Scherzeis at Loma Linda, who prescribe a vegan diet for brain health. So it was nice to hear a different perspective when it comes to that. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash geniusfoods. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post there and again, enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Max Lugavere. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. So a little backstory on today's show. A few years ago, I read a book called Genius Foods, Become Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life, and it was incredible. It touched on so many things that I personally study and explore and think about and implement all under the overarching theme of brain health. So it was amazing. I started following the author, Max Lugavere, and since then he has recently released another book, The Genius Life, which is a follow-up, Heal Your Mind, Strengthen Your Body, and Become Extraordinary. And also, that was amazing. So I was dying to have him on the show, especially because I follow a lot of his content and I feel like we're sort of the same person, or (laughs) at least we do a lot of the same similar stuff. So it was really an honor to finally be connected. And I'm like kind of in shock that we're finally talking here now. Max, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thanks so much for having me. What a, what a treat. All right. So to start things off, I do imagine that a lot of my audience is very familiar with you. They've asked me a lot to have you on the show, but for those who are not, could you tell them a little bit about your personal story? It's a very emotional and beautiful and sad story that led to what you're doing here today. So could you tell listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a health and science journalist and I've have a lifelong I've had a lifelong passion for fitness and nutrition and medicine as well. Actually, I started college on a pre-med track, but my career path kind of changed when I realized that I also had a love for storytelling and I had a creative spark in me. So about halfway through college, I pivoted to a double major in documentary filmmaking and psych- and psychology. And that led to me getting a job as a journalist, a generalist journalist, try saying that three times fast, 
working for a TV network in the United States that was co-founded by Al Gore. And it was sort of like uh, MTV meets CNN or Fox News or whatever your favorite news outlet is. It, it really was a nonpartisan network that sought to empower young and passionate storytellers, young people that had something to say in the era before, before YouTube, really, if you can, if you can imagine such a, such a time. And so I did that when I graduated college and I got to work with some amazing storytellers, journalists. I got to cover topics that were really serious and intense and really light and, and fluffy, but it was an amazing time. And I got to really hone my chops as a, as a storyteller and as a, as a communicator, somebody who had a really powerful, was wielding a really powerful microphone. And so I learned how to be delicate with delicate topics, essentially. And I did that again for six years. That was, you know, a, a remarkable experience for me. But the turning point in my life really came when I left that job in my personal life. My mother, at the age of 58, started to show the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. And I'm the first born out of a, in a very small family. I have two younger brothers, and I've always been incredibly close with my mother. And when my mom first started to show these symptoms, it was like a bomb going off in my world. It was the most unsettling thing. And I, you know, all of my anxiety and my neuroses led to me ultimately moving back to New York, which is where I'm from, to, to be with her and to take her to doctor's appointments, to physically be there with her because I had had this lifelong passion for reading fitness science and nutrition. And, and I thought that I could play a role in helping to see what was going on with her and perhaps even maybe help her in terms of her symptomology and, and, and just get answers ultimately. So I started going with her to doctor's appointments and doctor, doctor's office after doctor's office, what we experienced was the same thing. It was always diagnose and adios, but we didn't even have the luxury of really getting a, a firm diagnosis until a few years into her, her symptoms. It was really at the Cleveland Clinic in 2011 where we took her to finally get some kind of solution to what to what was going on with her some you know some semblance of an answer and it was there for the first time that she was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition and she was prescribed drugs for both alzheimer's disease and parkinson's disease at the same time and she, again she was very young she was 58 she had she was spirited she had all the pigment in her hair she was somebody who you know you would look at and you would say oh this is a woman who's in the prime of her life but it was that weekend that we started to have to give her drugs that are prescribed for both of you know, these conditions, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, conditions for which there, have never, there has never been a single survivor. And to me, that was, it was sort of like the line in the sand where, or like another metaphor that I like to use, it was sort of like a singularity in my life, which is a, a term used primarily in astrophysics, but it's like, it was the point of no return where I realized that I had to do everything that I could to learn everything that I could about these conditions and the lifestyle factors that might've contributed to my mother developing this condition, both for her sake, but then also to potentially prevent it from ever happening to me. Because I realized that I had the fortitude to know that I now had a risk factor. Even though this was never brought up in any of those doctor's offices, and I've never seen a neurologist personally for my own health, I realized that I now had something that could, you know, I had a, a, a risk factor, whatever it happened, whatever it may have been, that could potentially lead me down the very same path. And so I became obsessed. I became fixated 
with diving into the medical literature, learning everything that I could, leaving no stone unturned, talking to anybody who would be kind enough to talk to me. And that was a journey that began, I guess, at this point, about 10 years ago. And, you know, again, I, I was a, a journalist. I became a health and science journalist, really out of love and, and, and passion and, and aptitude, I think, for understanding science. And, you know, I started with the medical literature, which we live in a time, it's amazing. Everybody has access to PubMed. And I read every book that I could find. I watched every TED Talk. And ultimately, what I decided to do was exploit my media credentials. Because as I mentioned, I was on TV. So it all kind of comes full circle, where I realized that I had the ability to reach out to some of the scientists who were publishing the primary literature that I was reading to ask them questions specifically so that I could learn more. and. It sort of became my life's purpose and mission to learn as much as I could, digest it, assimilate it, and share it out with the, with the world at large. And that sort of led to all of these incredible opportunities that I've been so grateful to have had. I went on to become a core expert on the Dr. Oz show, the Rachel Ray show. I wrote two books, which you mentioned, and my podcast, The Genius Life, where I cover these kinds of topics routinely. And I always take the, the, perspective of my lens is really curiosity. I don't know everything, but I certainly at this point have learned a lot. And it really is my mission to just to, to keep learning and to keep questioning and to, and to ultimately share what it is that I'm learning with, with people of all ages, really. Because if you have a brain, you are at risk. Wow. <laughs> so now listeners can see why it's a really touching and beautiful foundation for everything. And I as well, my background was film and theater in LA at USC and everything sort of came full circle when I had my own health issues. And I love just having all of that come together. But going back to everything you just talked about now, so I'm haunted by what you said with there being no survivors for this condition. And like so often in this world, we talk about, in, the, in this world, I mean like the biohacking health sphere, we talk about agency and the ability to all of these health conditions to really take charge of your health and reverse conditions. So when it comes to dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, is there something there that is beyond our agency? Like it sounds like once you're on the path to it, like, is there a point of no return? And if so, what is the mechanism of action behind that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. First, I want to preface by saying we don't know everything. I certainly don't know everything. 90% of what we know about Alzheimer's disease alone has been discovered only in the past 15 or so years. So, you know, we are just starting to really unravel the etiology of, of that condition, let alone the more niche forms of dementia. Like, my mother, for example, she didn't have Alzheimer's disease. She had a form of dementia that affects one in five people with dementia called Lewy body dementia, which is basically, it's akin to having Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the same time. But what we do know about Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease is that like most non-communicable chronic diseases, they begin years, if not decades before the presentation of symptoms. So that very clearly offers us a window of opportunity to intervene and to change course when it comes to our cognitive destiny. And again, we don't know everything, but we do know a lot about the predisposition that your average American has to conditions like type 2 diabetes, to obesity. And 
these are conditions that are largely considered lifestyle conditions because they trace back to the, you know, what I believe is ultimately a toxic food supply, the standard American diet. And what could almost be described as equally toxic are our standard American lifestyles. The fact that we're so sedentary, the fact that we're chronically stressed out and un- underslept, and that we're exposed to myriad environmental toxins on a routine basis. So there are all these different factors. It's very obvious, you know, as I'm, as I'm speaking, that they play a contributing factor to the etiology of these brain conditions. But it's really now for the first time that we're starting to have concrete evidence, right? It's always good to have evidence. It's important to have scientific data. And when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, we know that there are various dietary and lifestyle factors that can dramatically increase your risk. So for example, type 2 diabetes is largely a lifestyle condition. We now know that if you have type 2 diabetes, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease increases between two and fourfold. So you have a two between a, a double and quadruple times risk. That's a between a double and quadruple multiple for de- risk in terms of risk for developing Alzheimer's disease if you have type 2 diabetes, which so many people in the United States have, right? About one in two people, if not more at this point. So right there, you know, that offers us some kind of clue, right? To, to look under the hood and to check on our metabolic health, right? If preventing Alzheimer's disease is something that we, that we care about. There are also other factors of the modern lifestyle. I mentioned, I mentioned environmental toxins, fine particulate matter in our cities, right? Like these are particles that are orders of magnitude smaller than the width of your human hair. So they're completely invisible to the naked eye, but they're comprised of particles like magnetite. We now know that we inhale these particles, they can pierce the blood-brain barrier, and they can stimulate an immune response in the brain that causes the aggregation of the proteinopathies that we, associated with, that we associate with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Proteinopathy is basically when proteins become dysfunctional, The most commonly known protein when it comes to neurodegeneration is amyloid beta, which is the protein that clumps and forms the plaques that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. Parkinson's disease, it's another protein called alpha-synuclein. But we know that just air pollution can can lead to these kinds of pathologies, which which are so closely tethered to this terrible condition, Alzheimer's disease, right? So there are all these things that we can do. And I believe that the sooner we start, the better, right? Because again, when you show up to the doctor's office with that first symptom, this is a decades-long disease process that is already well into motion. Parkinson's disease, for example, this is another very common neurodegenerative condition. Most people are familiar with Michael J. Fox. He's the most well-known celebrity with Parkinson's disease. By the time you show up to the doctor displaying the first symptom, half of the neurons that are affected by Parkinson's disease, half of them are already dead. They're already gone. So to me, it's just, we need to be doing everything that we can. And the beautiful thing about the recommendations that I make, that it's, they're not exclusive to protecting the brain. The brain is intricately reliant on the health of the body. So it's not that there's like one brain diet that's going to benefit the brain, but leave the cardiovascular system in the dark, right? It's all, everything is so intricately connected. And I think that my, my background as a, as a quasi-creative person really allowed me the, the foresight and the, and the ability to be able to connect those dots between all these different fields. Because, you know, medicine, I think one thing that it suffers from, especially in the, in the United States, 
is that it really takes this reductionist approach, right? Like we expect the cure for Alzheimer's disease because it's a neurological condition to be in the brain. But what if it wasn't? What if the answer to preventing this terrible condition, which currently affects 15 million people in the, in the United States alone, what if the answer was in the body? What if it had to do with the, our metabolic health? What if it had to do with our cardiovascular health? Now, these are not insights that, you know, that I'm not the only person talking about this, but it's still, you know, medicine suffers from this reductionist approach. And I think it's really important to, to take a more holistic view, especially if we want to move the needle on these kinds of multifactorial conditions. I could not agree more. <laughs> I am exactly on the same page. And okay, I have some granular follow-up questions about everything. So in all of these brain conditions, you were talking about the different protein buildups like the amyloid and the one that was in Parkinson's as well. So is that always there, like some sort of protein buildup? Or can you have one of these conditions and not have that? Yeah. So we all produce these proteins, amyloid beta. We make it throughout the day. And in fact, when we sleep, that's when our brains cleanse its, themselves of these proteins to the degree that on just one night of shortened sleep, you see an increase by about 30% of amyloid in cerebrospinal fluid, which we suspect is related to a greater chance of, that it's going to aggregate and, and stick, you know, hang around in the brain, which we don't want to happen. So yeah, we all, we all make these proteins and they're not proteins to be afraid of. We just want to understand what is causing them to, to aggregate and clump. You know, many scientists for many decades thought that amyloid was the causal player, that, that when it arrived in the brain, you know, we have to do everything that we can to flush it out and to get rid of it once it clumps together and forms these plaques, right? And that's been called the amyloid hypothesis. And that's really guided pharmaceutical drug discovery for the past few decades. But Alzheimer's disease drug trials have a abysmal fail rate. 99.6% of Alzheimer's drugs fail. And I think that the reason for that, and this is what the data is starting to show, is that amyloid, yeah, it's there at the scene of the crime, but it's a symptom. It's, it's not, it's, it doesn't seem like it's the cause. The cause is something deeper. It's metabolic dysfunction. It's inflammation. You know, it's chronically undersleeping. There are probably innumerable potential causes. Um, I've just listed off a few. But yeah, it's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to, to, to question and to, and to take a step back and to, and to ask where this, is, where this is coming from and what's causing it to clump and, and form these plaques. It's very similar. An analogy that I often draw is with cholesterol. You know, cholesterol, there's no doubt that cholesterol is there in occluded arteries, you know, that have atherosclerotic plaque, like cholesterol is there, right? But what caused the cholesterol to be there? Is cholesterol necessarily the bad guy? Cholesterol is a vital waxy substance that we produce in our own bodies and brains, right? Like if it were removed from each of our bodies and it's, you know, in its entirety, we would die. We need cholesterol. So what is, what's making this otherwise good compound go bad. It's probably has nothing to do with the cholesterol itself, but other dietary and lifestyle factors that cause it to end up in our arteries. And so the same thing I think goes for, for amyloid. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I was just going to make that analogy about the cholesterol. You answered my question without me even phrasing it correctly. I was, yeah, I was wondering, is amyloid the causal role there? Because one of the things that you mentioned in your book is how like we can cure Alzheimer's and rodents, but it just doesn't translate to humans necessarily. And I was really fascinated by that. So what role does the APOE4 gene play? I was really fascinated to learn how it's actually the oldest variant in humans. So what are your thoughts on the genetic role? Yeah, super interesting. So APOE4 is the most commonly, it's the most well-defined Alzheimer's risk gene. About one in four people carry it. I carry a copy. There was a time when I didn't even, you know, somebody told me that I shouldn't share that I carry a copy because it could be like a, you know, it might some time down the line be considered like a pre-existing, but it's so common, like one in four people carry it. And genes are not destiny, especially when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, having it increases your, your risk for developing, developing the condition between two and 14 fold. But there are some parts of the world where that risk gene is just as prevalent, but risks are much lower. So really, to me, what I think this is, it comes back to epigenetics, right? The interaction that our genes play with our environment. And you mentioned that APOE4 is, the, is considered the ancestral version of the gene. It's the oldest. And so what I think that that suggests is that it might make carriers of the APOE4 allele really the canaries in the coal mine for the modern Western way of life. It may make us the most vulnerable to the the preponderance of ultra-processed foods, of sedentary lifestyles, of chronic stress, of undersleeping. So again, it's not destiny. It's just, if you have it, I would urge you to 
get on board with this sort of, you know, genius foods lifestyle or whatever it is that's going to bring about your healthiest self, whatever diet lifestyle is going to work for you. You know, everybody's different and everybody has their own preferences. But, but yeah, it's not a gene to be afraid of. What it does is in Western populations is it tends to be associated with dyslipidemia. So, you know, problems with lipids like LDL cholesterol and things like that. It tends to be more pro-inflammatory in the context of the standard American diet, which we know is, you know, a pro-inflammatory diet in and of itself. But again, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. And I wouldn't really make the recommendations that I would that I would make to somebody with a, an APOE4 allele, either one or two copies, wouldn't be all that different from what I would recommend to anybody. Really, it's to cut back on the ultra-processed foods, to integrate healthful fats into your diet, to exercise vigorously on a routine basis. The one modification that I think I would probably suggest is to minimize exposure to an excessive amount of saturated fats. Now, I'm a big advocate for the consumption of grass-fed beef. I'm a big, you know, I personally consume dairy products, all those things, right? But there's some evidence that APOE4 carriers, they don't, their livers just don't do as good of a job recycling L, their LDL particles, which are the lipoproteins that are most closely associated with heart disease. And we know that cardiovascular health is crucially important to brain health. One of the mechanisms, if not the, me the mechanism, by which saturated fats so consistently are able to raise levels of LDL cholesterol in the blood is that they reduce the number of LDL receptors on the liver. And these LDL receptors on the liver, what they do is they basically pluck up LDL particles that are in circulation, disallowing them to become small and dense. We've all heard that small, and I'm sure you've covered it, Melanie, like small, it's, this, it's really the small, dense LDL phenotype that we want to be cautious of, not the large, fluffy, buoyant LDL particles. Those seem to be benign. And so, you know, not demonizing LDL here in any sense, but for APOE4 carriers, it seems that saturated fat Basically, there's already a, a plumbing problem with the recycling of these LDL particles, and saturated fat can make it even trickier. So what I recommend is, you know, if you're going to eat beef, try as best as you can to steer towards more grass-fed, pasture-raised options, which are going to be leaner anyway. You know, wild fish as, as opposed to farmed fish. And I also generally will minimize the consumption of butter and things like that. Butter is a unique, butter is actually a unique fat which we could talk about just for like a little bit because I think it's kind of cool. But butter, unlike, so butter is churned cream, but unlike churned cream, butter, the churning of cream actually disrupts what's called milk fat globule membrane, which is how we get such a dense, delicious product, the product that we call butter, right? But that may actually make the fats in butter more atherogenic. So for people with the APOE4 allele, I typically recommend like, you know, consuming butter in moderation. Not just like not going overboard with it, putting it in your smoothies and your, you know, coffee every day and stuff like that. With APOE4 being the original variant, the variants that transpired since then, were they adapting for a, because it sounds like with APOE4, you're not as good like you were saying at processing the saturated fats, or it might be more problematic for the brain. So the variants that happened since then, were they to help us deal with fat better or were they something else. Because like you talked about in the book how the populations that were early agricultural societies were less likely to have it. But that sounds like that's a dietary change to carbs rather than dealing with more fat. 
Like what happened with the, the variants and how the body adapted? Such a good question. I think it's both. And I'm just going to speculate here to some degree. But yeah, you know, our our diets changed during the first agricultural revolution, right? Our diets became a lot more consistently grain-based. And so, yeah, we started eating a lot more grains, wheat, corn, rice, things like that. But our fat consumption also very likely changed as well. Because if you consider like the fat content of wild game, wild game is incredibly lean. It's like if you've ever had elk or venison. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great, but it's very lean. It's nowhere near as fatty as a cow, which is a human creation. Like a, we've made cows. We've done, you know, cows are the domesticated end result of ox or bison. Don't quote me on that. I don't know actually where, where, like what we've bred to create cows. But, but what I do know is that cows are incredibly fatty. Even a grass-fed cow is way fattier than, than anything that you would be able to hunt for yourself, like wild, wild game-wise. So that leads me to believe that the fat content of our food also changed. Now, there are certain populations that do really well with high-fat diets, like the Inuit. They're, you know, they eat whale blubber primarily, and, and they're, you know, it's a very carnivorous diet. And again, I'm pro-animal products. I'm, I eat lots of grass-fed beef myself. But I think that our diets changed in terms of the carbohydrate content and the, the proliferation and the processing of, of grains. But then also in terms of the fat content when we started to, to domesticate and practice animal husbandry. So I think it's, I think it's both. And again, I'm just sort of, you know, that's, that's my opinion and a little bit of speculation there. But to me, that would be consistent with what we know about how APOE4s respond to, to modern diets. Talking more about the role of dietary fats and the brain, people will often say, especially in the low-carbon keto world, they'll say saturated fat you know, is, is very important for health. And then they'll give the example of how X percent of the brain is made of saturated fat. But the saturated fat that we eat doesn't become the saturated fat in the brain, correct? Like, isn't it created endogenously? Yes. So there have been a number of trials. There's, there's one in, in particular that I cite in Genius Foods where the... Circulating saturated fat is not really an issue. And the number one way to increase circulating saturated fats is not to eat saturated fat, but it's to eat lots and lots of carbs and sugar. And we create fats in our liver. It's a process called lipogenesis. But yeah, you do need a certain amount of saturated fat. It's, it's important for hormone synthesis. And there are some saturated fats that are actually quite good for you, like stearic acid, which is the primary form of saturated fat found in dark chocolate. And it's also found, as the name suggests, in beef. So like the word fat, even saturated fat can be broken down into myriad different types of saturated fat, each one having a different effect ultimately on the body. There's palmitic acid, there's myristic acid. Stearic acid seems to be the most beneficial of the saturated fats that I'm, that I'm familiar with. When it comes to curtailing saturated fat consumption. Yeah, you don't you don't want to eat a I'm not, you know, you don't want to eat a low fat diet. Low fat diets have been shown to reduce testosterone, which both men and women need for well-being, for sexual performance, function and, you know, body composition, myriad, you know, other important factors. But yeah, but I think that there's like a there's a cap, right? We live in a time where we're it's it's so great that we're finally out of the low fat dietary dogma era. But the pendulum has now swung in the other direction where people are seeking these incredibly high-fat diets. If you're on a ketogenic diet, 
a very high fat diet might be suitable for you. But if you're sort of on a a half-assed version of a ketogenic diet where you're not really bringing your carbs down all that much, you're just eating a lower carbohydrate diet, but then you're spiking up your fat intake, I don't think that that's necessarily good for you. To me, that's just a, another breed of, of the standard, American, standard Ameri- American diet. And of course, you know, like when it comes to fat consumption, the only fats that you really need to consume on a daily basis are the omega-3 fatty acids, which I recommend getting in their preformed state. So you can get a very, very small amount in grass-fed beef, but primarily, I would say, you know, eating wild fatty fish, super crucial on a, on a fairly regular basis. Or you could supplement with it if you're on a plant-based diet. You could take algae, oil, and the like. So, yeah, I, again, I'm an APOE4 carrier. I use butter in moderation, but it's not, it's, it's not the, it's not like my go-to staple just because I genetically am probably prone to hyperlipidemia. And if I personally had low or if I had normal to high levels, like within that range, I would feel totally okay. But it could potentially shoot it up into the high, high range. And I just don't think, you know, it would be uh, negligent for me to suggest that 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 was okay in the face of all the evidence that suggests otherwise. Yeah, you just touched on one of the things I feel so strongly about. And I think with the whole rise of, well, first originally the low-fat diet and then now like high-fat keto, I think people often do this thing where they want to do either low-fat or low-carb, but they don't go quite low-fat enough or they don't go quite low-carb enough. So they get into the situation with keto, for example, where they're adding all these fats, but it's like what you just said. If the carbs aren't quite low enough, I mean, that's a very dangerous metabolic state to be in where you have, or at least I think for a lot of people, where you have massive amounts of fats, but you're not low-carb enough to be, you know, running primarily on a fat burning metabolism. And then on the flip side, you might be going super high carb, low fat, but not quite low fat enough. So you have all of this carb intake, but you have some fat in the system creating uh, energy toxicity buildup on that side. So I just feel like this happens with a lot of people. (laughs) Um, But I think my audience, one of the complaints, I don't know if it's a complaint, but I'm always throwing different opinions at them with guests. I recently had on the Sure's Eyes, they run, I think... The Alzheimer's Institute at Loma Linda, I'm not sure exactly what the school is called. So they're all about a low-fat vegan diet. Their book is called The Alzheimer's Solution. Do you have thoughts on that, the, the vegan approach? Absolutely. There's zero evidence that a vegan diet is, is promotive of brain health. There's lots of evidence to the contrary. We can, you know, we can, we can take our sides when it comes to grass-fed beef, right? Like, I'm of the opinion that grass-fed beef is a is a health food and that it benefits brain health and I can back that up with, you know, with my my reasoning for that. But if you're not as a neurologist promoting the consumption of at least fish, then you are not sticking with the science. You have you have diverged from the science and you're now talking out of your butt essentially. Those two neurologists they they mean well and and I I respect them, but the recommendations to me are are mind blowing. Now I'm not that familiar with them, so I don't know if they are promoting the consumption of fish or where they stand on that. But I will say that the the vegan diet is not optimal from the standpoint of the brain, far from it. And that yeah, I just don't 
you know, I think it's, I think it is a disservice to people. I mean, there have been studies to show that in older adults, the consumption of choline is associated with a fairly dramatic risk reduction for Alzheimer's disease. Choline is most abundantly found in animal products, egg yolks, beef, foods like that. It's an incredibly important conditionally essential nutrient that serves as the backbone for acetylcholine. You can, I mean, in the word acetylcholine, that choline at the end of it, the suffix is we get that from our diets. We synthesize a small amount of it in our bodies, but we need to get choline from our diets. The Institute of Medicine, we have like a daily, like an adequate intake for it. It's very difficult to get from vegetables, even though it is found in vegetables in very small amounts. But yeah, th- a 30% risk reduction for people who consume the most choline. Choline is, is most abundantly found in, in animal products. Animal products also provide a bevy of really important nutrients that are plug and play to our biology, from zinc to vitamin B12 to preformed omega-3 fats to creatine. Creatine, many people are familiar with because of its association with physical performance and bodybuilding and sports and stuff like that. It's a vitally important nutrient that we need for good brain health. When they supplement vegans and vegetarians with, with synthetic supplemental creatine, creatine, they see an improvement in their cognitive function. That is a non-trivial data point to me. And you don't see that improvement in cognitive function in omnivores. So omnivores are already getting their creatine needs from their diets, but vegans and vegetarians are not. Creatine is exclusively found in animal products. These are called carninutrients. And I mean, there's, there's carnitine, there's taurine. To me, it's unquestionable that an omnivorous diet is, is optimal. In fact, it is the omnivorous diet that created the human brain. There's no hunter-gatherer group throughout, alive today, certainly, but in, his, in the historical record that, ex, that subsisted exclusively on vegan diets. Veganism today is it's a modern luxury. And I just think it's, like, it's a very privileged thing to, to, to suggest. Now, there, are, there is evidence that, just to be clear, that you know, meat consumption is associated with worse health outcomes, but that's because, I mean, you have to understand what's called healthy user bias. When you zoom out at the population level and you look at meat consumers in this country, they tend to consume more calories, they tend to eat more fast food, they tend to smoke, they tend to have other unhealthy lifestyle habits. And so that association is there. But when you control for those factors and you take people, there was just a study that was published that showed this, that when you control for diet quality, meat has no negative impact whatsoever. So I think that this is really important and yeah, needs to be, needs to be understood. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that 
that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. 
So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. We are on the same page. I really do like interviewing people who are really, really vegan though, because I'm just so fascinated by where they're getting <laughs> their ideas. I, I like, I want to know because it's such a huge movement. I'm interviewing Neil Bernard soon. So that will be an interesting conversation. Speaking of the fish, I learned something in your book that I had never heard of it before and I haven't seen it anywhere else since then. Could you talk about the role of F fatty acids? I had never heard of those before. Furens? Like, yeah, I mean, those are, they're basically these tag along chemicals that fight oxidative stress that I believe, if I recall correctly, because I know exactly the info box that you're talking about, those were identified with the green, the New Zealand green mussel, something, the green lipped mussel or something, which they basically isolated the essential fatty acids and they gave them or certain fats from these mussels. And they gave them in a clinical trial to this group and they found that the fatty acids weren't able to impart the health benefits that they saw from the consumption of whole foods. And so there's this, there was this German chemist that isolated these furon fatty acids and he was able to show that they were incredibly beneficial. They sniped oxidative stress like a boss. Oxidative stress, of course, underlies many chronic disease states. The main reason why I included that, I mean, that's sort of like a mechanistic early, I wouldn't, you know, it's not the kind of thing where I would recommend people going out to look for these, you know, furan fats in supplement form. But the reason why I bring it up is really because I think what a lot of people try to do in nutrition is they practice nutritionism, which is breaking food, the attempt to break food down into its constituent nutrients. And the idea is that if we're able to do that as a species, then we can basically provide these nutrients in isolation and create, you know, ultimately the perfect food, right? But what we find, I think, over and over again, which has mystified nutrition scientists, is that these isolated nutrients don't always impart the same health benefit as they do when they're in their whole food form, which leads to the, con- the obvious conclusion that there are countless chemicals in, in our food that benefit human health, whether we've d- identified and described them and studied them or not. And that to me is a wonderful argument against veganism and against also supplementation and against creating these fake like meal replacement powders like Soylent and, you know, and, and trying to play a cat and mouse game with the nutrients that we think that we need for our bodies. I mean, we certainly, you know, we, we have our essential nutrients. We know that. But there are other nutrients that are not accounted for in the list of essential nutrients that benefit human health. I mentioned creatine. Creatine is a perfect example of that. Taurine. You won't die without consuming taurine in your diet. You're not a cat. A cat For a cat, taurine is essential. But for a human, it's not essential. But there is lots of data out there that suggests that taurine is actually really beneficial to our cardiovascular systems. And where is taurine found? It's found in organ meats. It's found, yeah, primarily in animal products. And that's a nutrient that you're just completely missing out on entirely if you were to go on, a, on an exclusively plant-based diet. 
So to me, again, it's it's hubris. It do, it doesn't you know make logical sense. But that's not to say that you can't do well on a vegan diet. There certainly are many people that that are and that are doing it. What really riles me up is you know those that are suggesting this diet for for like the wider the population at large and suggesting erroneously that it's better that it's more optimal than an omnivorous diet. Yeah, it makes me very nervous. That was the huge takeaway about the F fatty acids was we think that we can like you just said look at a whole food and find the specific ingredients in it that are doing whatever health benefit they're doing, but you talked about with the F fatty acids that you know maybe that's an example of a reason that taking supplemental forms of EPA DHA might not actually I think you were comparing it to like the whole foods form and how supplements might not always measure up because we might not take into account like the destruction of these F fatty acids, for example. It's all really fascinating. As far as actually fueling the brain, so so when I interviewed the Sherzais, they are not fans of ketones for fueling the brain or they're just, they prefer glucose. What are your thoughts on a brain fueled on glucose versus ketones versus something else I think about a lot and I don't hear people talking about, but you talk about it. Lactate. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not an advocate of chronic ketosis for your average person. I think ketosis is a has to be talked about in the context of brain health. And if they are shunning it like that, again, that to me is very irresponsible because there's a lot of inf- research now happening where they're looking at the impact of the ketogenic diet as a therapeutic diet in the setting of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. We know that it's been used very successfully for certain types of treatment-resistant epilepsy for the past century at this point. So, you know, <laughs> I, I just don't really, I don't understand the attitude of being down on what you're not up on. It's, it's a diet that many people enjoy adhering to, that have seen all kinds of success in terms of weight loss. And again, if, you know, for, in terms of its ability to be used as a therapeutic diet, the research is very promising. Does your average person need to be on a ketogenic diet? No, absolutely not. It's comparable. I think it's analogous to, you know, if you are, if you have type 2 diabetes, the dietary recommendations that I would make for you would be different than somebody I would make who is not yet metabolically ill. So there's a, there's a difference. And I think to their credit, the ketogenic diet gets thrown around a lot. It's now used as a marketing claim on, you know, myriad packaged processed foods that are no better for you than non, you know, I mean, maybe they're, they're slightly better for you than non, non-keto products. But I do think from an ancestral standpoint, it does make sense that a human would be in ketosis at least some part of the year, if not some part of the month, if not some part of the day. And what I think is so great about ketones, aside from the fact that they can be used to fuel to bra- fuel the brain, is that they're not just a fuel. See, glucose, when it comes to the brain, it's just a fuel. It's a it's a it's a fuel. It's it's sort of like gasoline for the brain, right? It's like it's reliable, but it burns dirty. Ketones, on the other hand, not only do they burn clean, but they have all kinds of other downstream benefits. They actually act as signaling molecules in the brain, like beta hydroxy hydroxybutyrate. They've been they've shown that ketones can actually when there's when ketones are elevated in serum they can lead to an increase of blood flow to the brain i want to say by about 20% shown in in rats but it's it's feasible that we'd see some increase in blood flow to the brain as well as humans but ketones have been shown to boost levels of bdnf brain derived neurotrophic factor which is 
been called miracle grow for the brain, right? It's, it helps to ensure the survival of our existing neurons. It helps promote the growth of new ones. It's really crucial for the characteristic known as neuroplasticity, the ability of your brain to change over time. So ketones have all of these like side hustles that I think make it such an important class of compounds that, I mean, I think we have to continue studying and we have to be talking about if we're talking about good brain health. I'm not saying that we all need to be in, in ketosis all the time, but if you're eating a lower carbohydrate diet and you're active, there's a good chance that you're going to wake up in a mild form of ketosis. If, you're, if you routinely engage in intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, which now there's all this research coming out showing us how beneficial that can be from a number of different standpoints, you're going to probably be in, in, some, in mild ketosis some of the time. So I think it's really the, the deficit, the chronic deficit of ketone availability to the brain that, that may play a role in the etiology of these conditions. Now, the, the role of the ketogenic diet as a preventative diet for Alzheimer's disease, I don't think that you need to be in ketosis for life to prevent Alzheimer's disease. I just want to be very clear with that. But that research, I believe, is starting to happen, and we're starting to see the role that, that ketones have uh, in terms of protecting brain health. But when it comes to somebody who already has Alzheimer's disease, we have to talk about ketone production I mean, and, and the ketogenic diet. It's a very difficult diet to adhere to, but the brain, the Alzheimer's riddled brain, it basically loses the ability to create ATP from glucose. So, you know, normally under, under fed, under normal, typical fed conditions, your brain is, is 100% of its energy is coming from glucose. But an Alzheimer's brain, its ability to generate ATP is diminished by about 50% from, from glucose. But its ability to create energy from ketones is completely unperturbed. So you can basically keep the lights on by consuming a diet that supports ketogenesis or, by, or possibly by consuming ketogenic foods like uh, medium-chain triglycerides or there's an FDA-approved medical food product made of medium-chain triglycerides called Axona. So, I mean, this is like, you know, right there, this is a medical food FDA approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. It's not a miracle cure or anything like that, but I think it's very hopeful and it, it tells us the value that ketones have to the brain. So if you're, if you're not in support of that, of that line of research, I think you're, you've got your head like buried like a, like a, you know, who are the birds that do that? Ostriches? You've just got your head in the sand. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? 
I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought... It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. It's like a double whammy, the potential health benefits, because you talk about insulin degrading enzyme and how it, um, or could you talk about insulin degrading enzyme and how it has multi-purposes? So insulin degrading enzyme, it's the enzyme in the brain that, as its name suggests, it breaks down insulin. And insulin in the brain is used for energy production. It's used as a signaling molecule, but insulin degrading enzyme, which exists in the brain to break down insulin also it has a it has another role and its role is to break down amyloid beta and to keep amyloid beta soluble so that it can be flushed away the problem is when insulin is chronically elevated 
insulin degrading enzyme doesn't work as effectively. So this is obviously very precarious from the standpoint of the brain, right? Because we want to be doing everything that we can to make sure that amyloid is getting flushed away with good sleep, but also keeping, keeping, making sure that we are not, we don't have chronically elevated insulin is another way that we can support having a pristine brain. And, you know, there's some debate, does, does, is the way to avoid chronically elevated insulin to avoid carbs, or is it just to not become insulin resistant? And I think that my, you know, I think that my perspective on that, it's very moderate. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm pro healthy sources of carbs. I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti-carb. And primarily, the most common driver of insulin resistance, which is going to lead to chronically elevated levels of insulin, is being, is being overweight or is cons- it's consuming too many calories. And I think that the way to rein that in is to, is to strike an, a, a balance in terms of the energy that you consume and the energy that you burn off every day. But that becomes increasingly difficult with the standard American food supply, which is, which is just saturated with ultra-processed foods that drive their own overconsumption. So it's, a, it's very tricky. But I think by eating a healthful diet, one that you know it's primarily com- comprised of whole foods, minimally processed foods, and also, you know, I'm a big fan of eating a, low, a lower carbohydrate diet and using carbohydrates as a performance enhancing tool. So earning your carbs is kind of what we tend to say in like the fitness community. I'm a big fan of, of that. And that's going to basically also keep, you know, your, your insulin area under the curve as low as possible as well. Well, I bet listeners are dying to know specifics about all of this. So I'm just going to have to refer them to your books. Friends, if you get Genius Foods and The Genius Life, it goes deep, deep, deep into all of this, the foods, so many things we didn't even remotely barely touch on. There's just so much content there, you know, sauna and cold and noise pollution and the effect of your furniture. And like, there's just like, I learned that wobbly furniture, if you have wobbly furniture, you're more likely to break up with your significant other, which is (laughs) a fun fact. But then I was thinking, does that apply to like the the chair I'm on right now is a, um, one of those wobbly like things so that you're never, um, so it makes you constantly like adjust your, your position. I wonder if that applies might be different. I don't know. I mean, that, that section is basically all about how we are influenced on a su- completely subconscious level by our environment. You know, we, we create our environments, but our, our environments play a role in creating us. And so there have been studies that have shown, small studies, you know, interesting, but I'll caveat by saying that they're small, but that have shown that people tend to make, people, their, their values tend to change depending on the environment that they're in. and this was displayed in, in a particular study with respect to wobbly furniture when they put couples at tables that were wobbly and they showed them pictures of celebrity couples. And they found this was a randomized control trial, right? So they took groups, they randomized them, stable furniture, wobbly furniture. And they found that the group that was sitting at the wobbly table was more inclined to believe that the same photos of celebrity couples that they were, that they that they painted the outlook of those relationships with a more pessimistic view. It's crazy. So for listeners, you'll have to get the book. You also touch a lot on the role of mindset, and that's perfect because the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I personally realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh man, Melanie, well, I'm, I'm grateful to have had this conversation with you. I think we like we covered some really cool topics 
yeah, dusted off some of the catacombs of my of my own knowledge. I mean, it's been a while since I talked about the New Zealand green-lipped mussel. So thank you for 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 asking me about that. I just I'm grateful that my work has has gotten out there and resonated with people, and that I'm able to do what it is that I love for a living. Like it makes me immensely happy, and the feedback that I get on a daily basis, I just feel so so lucky and so like I'm aligned with my purpose. That's a feeling that I didn't always have. You know, it took a long wait it was a long way to get to this point and obviously there was a lot of tragedy um in my life with regards to my mother but yeah i'm just i'm happy that that it's resonated that people are responsive to my work and that i get to go on cool podcasts with big followings like yours and it just makes me feel really um yeah fulfilled so very grateful for that well, thank you so much. I cannot say it enough. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's had a huge effect on my life. I know it's affected so many people. I just know my listeners are absolutely going to love this so, so much. So I cannot thank you enough. And this episode, we're recording it when listeners hear it. It will have been a while ago. We're airing it in March. And I believe you will have, I think, just released probably this week, because I think we're going to try to sync this for the release of your book, a cookbook. So, listeners, can get that if they want to um, start making the actual meals to hopefully benefit their health and their brain health and all the things. So congrats in advance on that. It's called Genius Kitchen and I'm super excited. It's my first cookbook. It's sort of like two books in one. We have a bunch of really epic recipes that I'm super proud of, all grain-free, gluten-free, made with the most nutrient-dense and accessible foods on the planet. But as I mentioned, two in one, the, fir- the first half of the book is like, I break down every single food component. And I talk about in a very dogma-free way what you should be stocking your genius kitchen with and what you should be aiming to avoid. And then I go into food prep methods and how to optimize digestion and all that stuff. So it's a very robust cookbook. I'm super excited for it. Oh, I can't wait to read it. That's really exciting. Well, congrats in advance. And hopefully we can bring you back on in the future because like I said, there's so much, so many topics and you're doing really amazing things. Thanks, Melanie. We'd love to. All right. Thanks, Max. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.